After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Hi, everyone. It's Mind Rolling. We're back, David Silver and myself, Raghu Marcus. And to say that we have another of our low-hanging fruit <laughs> fellows with us, is, uh, to say the least. Uh, Michael Daner is with us today, a.k.a. Jadu. It's a spiritual name that he got when we were all together in the 70s in a spiritual scene with a teacher named Joya. Do you remember Joya, Michael? Welcome, Hi. Michael. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Uh, very well. Very Good. well. Well, you know, we're getting on, you know, and people... We're, the, not that, we're not that senile. Give me a break. Well, the good thing is that uh, you can tell stories over and over now, and people go, yeah, no, I, I don't remember hearing that story before. <laughs> exactly. It comes in. It's why you have to, it has to be age-appropriate. You have to hang out with people in your uh, same realm. Right, exactly. So... Uh, Hey, wait, before we set off into this extravaganza, which uh, everybody out there, you're going to enjoy this. This is uh, some great revelations of what happened with some of us who went to the East in the, uh, at the turn of the 60s into the 70s. Uh, but David, do we have anything to report or say about uh, our support at MindPod Network, Mind Rolling? Anything? Do you have anything um, to contribute today? Well... You gotta get on the Amazon trail, even though um, I'm really reluctant to bore you with this. But you know, I'm uh, not. I, I'm not reluctant. For MindPod Network and Mind Rolling and the rest of them, uh, just remember to buy your things through the portal on the network and buy more things. This is um, <laughs> you know, the, it's like like my idol George, like George W. Bush said, my idol, you know. Uh, when after 9/11, just go out and shop. So unfortunately, you can't you can't really shop at Amazon unless you're in Seattle, I guess. But um, just you know, if you're going to buy something in that rare situation, buy it on Amazon, no matter what it is, and it it helps us. We get a small percentage, and you know, we've learned that even though this is tedious to do this, uh, it helps because people forget. I forget, um, even though I'm not I'm the only one who's not allowed to do this. What's what's the technique for doing that? Because I know when I went to do it, it was a little confusing. Uh, Raga, you know the technique. The technique is to go to mindpodnetwork.com, or you can go to the Mind Rolling um, page, or just right there at, mind, at mindpodnetwork.com, there's an Amazon banner, right? And okay. you just yeah. you yeah. click on it, and then you copy and paste 
the URL, which has the MindPod network link in it, and you take that and you paste it into your browser at the top. Uh, if you have a Mac, I'm not sure what happens on a PC, but I know that you can paste in favorite websites to go to on PCs and on iOS, on Apple. And then whenever you think to buy something, you go right up to the top and you click it, Amazon, and whatever you get the same view that you would if you went to Amazon.com through Google or Safari, whatever, through any of the browsers. And, and it's right there. And you can buy whatever it is that you would normally buy, and we get that small percentage. But uh, yep. it all adds up, and it really does go a long way. I know uh, we hate belaboring this thing, but it's, uh, it's an important, it is important. So uh, two things on Amazon, by the way, Dave, and one of them I want for Christmas. This isn't a hint. And I may get it for my birthday, so don't don't go right out there. Uh, that is, <laughs> don't go running out there. Uh, no, I was going out. I was doing it. I was yeah. putting my shoes on. So the Bruce Springsteen has a, a, a new box set, which is uh, from the river. Uh, and a, a lot of, uh, he did like, you know, f he always does hundred more songs than he needed to do. I don't know, not that many. Um, and our good friend Shiva Baum has recommended this is a superlative collection alongside of the new Dylan collection. Both of those coming out uh, certainly be out there before uh, Thanksgiving. So those are two recommendations that you can get through Amazon. And Dylan one is out now. I, I oh, it is. Oh, okay. Well, an MP3 I bought. It. I, do, I don't know about the box. I mean, yeah, you know. Uh, I helped name the river, so I just want to say that. No. What? Absolutely. <laughs> okay, yeah, when, when, when I, I, Michael, please don't go to sleep while we're talking about this. <laughs> Did uh, my eyes close? I'm sorry. No, 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 no. It's just we're taking a long time and it's rude. But, you know, we have to do this because we've been told by people as uh, successful as Duncan Trussell that we've really got to push things at the beginning or, or people forget because it's, you know, have a life. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, when I when I was directing uh, the concert for, uh, of No Nukes, I worked with Springsteen for months. And uh, when we shot The River, the actual song The River, um, I remember John Landau, who was Bruce's manager, mentioned to me that Bruce was upset that I used the left side of his face instead of the right side because he had a huge cold sore on his lip on the yeah. left side. So we changed the angle of the camera. I mean, we changed the shot. You know, we had 12 cameras. And uh, at some point during the uh, the production, uh, I said to Springsteen that I, you know, that the river was a very different song from anything I thought he'd ever done, and was a, a departure for him because it was much more of a ballad, and much less of a you know punchy, so soul type of song. And uh, he was working on the river from mid afternoon to midnight every day, and then I met him at midnight uh, in the film building in Manhattan, and we worked from. 12 to 4 every night and um, at some point he asked me this is how this is why I'm telling you this and I'm really bored already but anyway uh, he asked me what do you think about a title for this album and he mentioned you know like three or four things that he and Lando had talked about and then he said well how about the river and I said yeah that's a great title the river is so evocative rivers are, everybody loves rivers and he said okay done <laughs> and so, you know, yeah, I had a little part of that. Hmm. And now I'm going away so we can listen to the great tales of Michael Daner, who has done things that we only dream about. Correct? Yeah. But I want to, I, I need, Michael, before you start, I need to, of course, frame this a little bit. Yes. Right. 
So at the end of the 60s into the early 70s, many, many people, you could call them hippies, um, went to the East. And you could almost categorize, there was two rivers, if we're talking about rivers. Yeah. There was two rivers that were taken, two paths. One was going to the East, and there were several spots in the East that were um, predominantly populated by people who were doing um, specific adventures, shall we say, to bring back the kind to America, which means beautiful hashish. And they, uh, they went to places like Goa, they went to places like Kulu Valley, especially Kulu Valley, where the best hashish was available. And also, of course, the, the big meeting place was Delhi, um, because it was the central place where everybody landed if they were coming by plane, but of course many people came overland. So that was one river. And the other one was people who went specifically to ashrams and to visit with gurus and so on in many different places around India, but primarily uh, in the north of India. And there was an interesting meeting of these two groups. There was some crossover between these two groups. People would come doing these, what we called scams at that time, and uh, they might pop over to the ashram to see what was going on. And they certainly were aware of some of the beings that were being visited by people who went there specifically to do either do meditation courses. That was a big deal at the time, too. So uh, now introducing Mr. Daner here, who was a uh, front runner of one of those <laughs> rivers. Well... Well, I, I would say that I, I had my foot, and I would add another uh, uh, strand as well, and that would be the adventurers. There were, there were a lot of people that were there just for the adventure of going to the East, and maybe they weren't going there for drugs or for spiritual uh, quest, but just to kind of, because they heard their friends were going, and it sounded like an amazing journey. And, um, and I have to say that personally, I've, I've given this a lot of thought, and especially, you know, having written this treatment about that journey called Seekers and Smugglers, um, that I kind of had a foot in, th in three, all three of those worlds, because I, I always had a desire to see the old way, the, the, and going to Afghanistan was like going back to the 14th century in, as, as almost an, an amateur anthropologist. I got to see that. And, um, and there was a big distinction as well on how you went, like the adventure aspect was going overland and overland in those days meant that you could start, for example, in Amsterdam, as I did with my wife when we, on my second journey to the east on the hippie trail, uh, you could drive all the way from Amsterdam to Kathmandu. And the only place, which is virtually impossible nowadays, but um, 
And the only thing you had to do was cross the Bosphorus in Turkey. And then you were in Asia. That was the, so you would leave Istanbul. Uh, most people went to the pudding shop in Istanbul. And they, uh, this was a restaurant uh, emporium. And, and I don't know how. I, I feel like for myself, uh, it was almost like, uh, you know, the expression, follow your bliss. I was, I was so primed for this experience that I remember reading an article in the New York Times about how people, how uh, hippies were meeting up and uh, smoking on top of the pudding shop and then catching rides the rest of the way to the east. So that was really kind of the jump off. Uh, point was the pudding shop. And I would frame the high points in kind of different ways. And I would say, because this is looking at it from the overland point of view. We used to look at people that flew in as kind of uh, like they, they hadn't really paid their dues. At that time, I looked at it. Now I look at it. They were the people who really were going to see the gurus. And so that was really what so it was kind of a different headset. I, I agree with you, those different strands. But myself, I, I, I had read Autobiography of a Yogi and the other books, but I also had read the books of Gurdjieff and Ospensky and those books. And those books were kind of based on Sufic uh, thought, which was more coming from the Islamic world. And after a time, I found out that where Gurdjieff had been, had been through Afghanistan and Pakistan. So I was quite interested in that, uh, that path as well. And by the time, by the, the first time I went on the hippie trail, I went with friends from Philadelphia. Uh, we call it in the ill-fated Land Rover. So they invited me to go along with them. And I met them in Venice. And the first thing they said to me is, uh, do you see anything out of place in this van? And it turned out that I was, my feet were on a false step that they had had constructed in the rear seat, you know, where you put your feet down was a compartment. So they had a, a false compartment and they drove to Afghanistan uh, where they actually got busted uh, they have these things where, you know, the dealer will sell you the hashish, then he'll turn you into the police. The police then bust you and then you have to buy your way out. Nobody really goes to jail. And so uh, I lent them the money to that I was going to use to buy a BMW motorcycle on the way back to to buy themselves out of jail. So I, I probably saved myself an accident or something. But in any case, uh, that was the first time I went, and though and my friends, it was the worst smuggling venture imaginable. Everybody in Philadelphia was walking around saying, "When's the Land Rover coming back?" <laughs> so uh, I I didn't get in any trouble with them in Afghanistan or Asia, and as a matter of fact, I I left them in Kathmandu and started traveling through India myself. And that was really liberating, uh, just all the adventures I had, uh, the places that I went. That's when I went to Goa for the first time and traveled all the way down through Ceylon. And uh, just an aside, the food gets hotter and hotter as you go further and further south. 
until you finally get to Ceylon and you think, are these people eating this willingly? It's hard to believe. Uh, so uh, the Land Rover landed in Philadelphia. I was back as well. And my friends were busted. And they came back and, they, you know, they were, of course, completely distraught. And I uh, found somebody who said that they could retrieve the Land Rover. And it was because they, this is like the French connection aspect of the story. So they had a crooked police lieutenant who, I, I guess, his plan was that he didn't have a plan. He just had the Land Rover towed to a garage and it was descended upon by 21 uh, federal agents. <laughs> and uh, my friends really didn't know anything about that uh, in, in terms of who it was or what happened. They just knew that there was supposed to be a, 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 a police lieutenant who was supposed to get it out. So they turned themselves in, were busted, and um, I kind of, you know, started to make myself scarce, even though I didn't think I had really done anything uh, at that point. And I uh, was living at my friend's house in suburban Philadelphia, at, and there was a big party. And who comes walking in but Steve and Andrea, the people from the Land Rover? And I said, what happened? They said, well, we're out on bail. And if I were you, I would really think about getting out of Dodge. You, your name has come up. Now, my name could only come up through them, basically. But, but at least they told me and warned me. And um, the interesting thing is, in coming back from India, from that Land Rover trip, I came back through London. And on my way back, I met my future wife in London. And that was really when, you know, you heard swinging London. Those were the days. And uh, Sally and I, um, well, Govind, a friend, of, a mutual friend, gave me Sally's number in London and said, oh, you're from Philadelphia. She'll give you a place to stay. Sally and Diane, her sister. Well, somehow I talked Diane into letting me stay at her place. And Sally and I connected. And she ended up coming back to Philadelphia actually right around the corner from where I was staying at my friend's place in this Arboretum. So Steve and Andrea walk into the party, tell me to get out of town. And um, I s said to, to Sally, would you like to go? Because now we were kind of a number at that point. And she said, sure. And I had a going out of existence sale, sold all of my worldly possessions, she took about $2,000 she had out of the bank. And two weeks later, we were in Amsterdam shopping for a van. Uh, and I kind of had a plan at this point that the van that I got, uh, I was going to bring back in the same way, hopefully more successfully than my friends did. Uh, but I had, a, I think, a better plan. Uh, so then... Um, Sally and I started the journey. So this was the second time on the hippie trail. But this time I was it was it was our trip, basically, before I went on my friend's trip, kind of sat in the back seat, let him figure everything out and uh, all the way up to Kathmandu. And now this time I kind of knew 
the rules of the road. So, um, so I, I started off saying that uh, the jumping off point was the pudding shop in, uh, in Istanbul. Then you took a ferry across the Bosphorus and you were in Asia. So my friend had warned, now Sally and I are back. We, have, we purchased a, an old Mercedes minibus, basically about very curvaceous. It was like twice, if you imagine the Volkswagen, the old fashioned Volkswagen vans doubled. That's what it was. Bigger, taller, but just beautiful, fantastic. And I bought it from a guy who had already driven it to Afghanistan and brought it back to Amsterdam <laughs> and then he sold it to me. So I did it for the second trip and then I sold it to some Italian hippies who I think did the third, the third trip with it. But in any case, um, after, after you le left the pudding shop, the next really big stop on the hippie trail was Kabul. Kabul, Afghanistan. And now we all know about Afghanistan through because of war. In those days, nobody knew where Afghanistan was. I think there was even there was even a movie where the funny code word was Afghanistan Bananistan because nobody knew where it was. But Afghanistan was like Deadwood. The, I don't know if you know the yeah. show Deadwood. Oh uh, yeah. But Deadwood was uh, based on the fact it was on Indian land, so there was no law. And in in Kabul or Kabul, there was basically no law. So uh, all the people going overland, whether they're spiritual, because a lot of people went overland because they couldn't afford to fly in. And you could take a double-decker bus from London for 100 bucks, and you could, it would take you all the way to Delhi. And you would camp out. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so in Kabul, you had this confluence of the various streams of humanity. So... You had, you had your hippies, you had your spiritual seekers, you had your drug dealers, you had the DEA uh, there, but they really didn't have any um, powers there. But our favorite restaurant was Tritoni's, and supposedly he was, he was an Italian expatriate, and that was the great thing about Afghanistan, because you never asked why somebody was there. Because, you know, they were there for all different reasons. But a lot of them, the people who actually stayed there, it was because it was one of the few places they could stay. Uh, so at that restaurant, uh, and he made everything himself, uh, you know, the wine, the uh, gelati, the pasta, because he couldn't get it anywhere. It was just the best Italian restaurant. On one side were all the agents, and on the other side were all the drug dealers. So <laughs> it was great. And they say that the restaurant in the center of, of town, the Khyber restaurant, which was kind of the first restaurant that you would go to when you entered Kabul, uh, was the, um, it was the scene in Star Wars, the intergalactic mm. smuggling scene was based on the Kyber restaurant. And that was really what it was like. Yeah. So, so, um, mm. so we got as far as Kabul and, um, we went to the Kyber restaurant. We saw some of Sally's friends from London and we had a really great time. We went, we went with them to a dinner 
uh, at their, they had a, they were uh, people who uh, specialized, they had a shop in uh, called Oxus in London, David. I don't know if you knew that, that shop. Kind of of Afghan stuff. And their, their big, uh, their big, call it a scam, was smuggling Gandhara uh, artifacts out of there, which was the, which was the culture when Greeks, Greek uh, culture reached as far as Afghanistan. And uh, so there's Buddhas, Buddhas with uh, Greek headdresses and all this unusual uh, um, sculpture, and they would bring it back to London. So we went to their, um, their finder's house. First day that Sally and I were in, first night we were in Afghanistan, we went to their man, their finder was the guy who would go out into the hinterlands and bring things back, uh, whether they're antiquities or whether they're carpets or whatever. And uh, we got arrested by the police for being in the native quarter. <laughs> and we didn't, you know, I didn't know you're not allowed to be in the native quarter. This guy had us at a feast at his house. So um, anyway, um, so after this, we had a great time. We decided to go to the post office. They called it post restante. Uh, rest where mail would be held for somebody to come call. So I, I'm, I'm driving down the street in my van past a bazaar and a million kinds of fruit and meat hanging with, with flies all over it. And I go to the post restaurant and I get two letters from Stephen Andrea, the people with the Land Rover. One of them said, uh, come back. Everything's cool. And the other one said, don't come back. I was forced to write that. So at that point, I realized that we were fugitives. If we went back, uh, we would be busted for their, for their. So then uh, it was, um, you know, we started. There's nothing that will focus you like something like that on, on what you have and where you're going. And we only had a couple thousand bucks, uh, which, of course, you know, could take you for about a year in Asia at that time. So it wasn't wasn't that bad. But um, uh, it was it was then that I started to look around and start to pull on some resources. We, we ended up getting a, renting a house in a diplomatic colony in Kabul on Chicken Street, it was called. And uh, it soon was populated with a bunch of people from Philadelphia. Because somehow uh, Philadelphia had this great migration to the east. Most of them were there not for the spiritual path, for the other path. Um, but so we uh, were there and, you know, we were there for five and a half months. We thought we would be there for two weeks. But the war broke out between India and Pakistan and we ended up being there for five and a half months, which was probably the most fascinating five and a half months of my life, actually. Um, so I learned to speak a little Dari, but the other thing I learned was how to make false bottom suitcases. <laughs> because there was a branch of the hog farm, a branch of the hog farm had gotten stra stranded or chose to stay in Kabul. And uh, they developed a, uh, a, a false bottom suitcase factory, basically. And 
being at that point where uh, I didn't know where my next dollar was going to come from, I realized I had to do something and I was stranded out there along with Sally in Asia. So uh, I went to the people from the hog farm who I had met and I uh, said to them, I want to I buy two suitcases and a cosmetic bag. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the only thing is you have to teach me how to do it. So, that, so they taught me the craft. Uh, it was my probably the And actually, as an aside, I, I taught our mutual friend, who's the sculpture, his first uh, fiberglass work, Raj. Um, <laughs> uh, so in any case, uh, there we were and, um, we, we, we decided to do, to get a set of suitcases. And, uh, after five, five, five and a half months in Afghanistan, we, uh, they opened up the borders so you could leave for maybe one day a week. And uh, we we decided now I'm going to now I'm telling a story. So to leave to leave Afghanistan, uh, it was there's not you don't just leave Afghanistan into Pakistan. You have to leave Afghanistan. You go through customs and you're in the tribal zone and you go through the tribal zone and you leave the tribal zone and you go to Pakistan. So in order to get these suitcases out, uh, I didn't want to carry them. And don't ask me how we found out about all these people, but I was introduced to Abdul in Kandahar, who had a hotel in Kandahar and a hotel in Quetta in Pakistan. So, so um, I had to take these suitcases to uh, Kandahar and give them to Abdul. And then we had to make our way through the tribal zone, pick them up in Quetta. And the plan was we were going to then take a first class train in Pakistan and we were going to change from hippies into like, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, air, airline stewardesses and pilots or whatever. We were going to straighten up basically. So, so we, uh, we, go through the tribal zone and to say that that say it like that makes it sound very easy but it was uh it was just like a journey in itself where first we we got to um sort of the center of the tribal zone and we needed to make it to to meet our train so i decided i was going to take a uh, we weren't going to take a bus. We were going to hire a 1948 Hudson that was going to drive us to the border that had two little, two young boys who rode on the top to act as windshield wipers on the thing. <laughs> and, uh, we got, we got five minutes outside that town and the thing broke down and, uh, the guy didn't want to give our money back. Uh, and, and you have to understand in, in Afghanistan, it's really a survival of the fittest. So the people who survive are usually like giant vital people because if they could survive living there, uh, they, they'd have some kind of strength. 
So this guy was like a six foot four guy. I picked up a rock from the side of the road and Sally said, you are crazy. (laughs) And, and the next thing, you know, at that moment, a truck came by. And so they, we, we hopped in the front of the truck, threw our bags in the back. uh, And we went, I'd say another five miles and the truck broke down. (laughs) Then comes the bus that we were trying to avoid taking in the very beginning. And we get on the bus. We're up front and it's just a story that you hear about chickens flying around the bus. We're going down all these switchbacks, back and forth, lower. The guy has this wild Arabic music playing on the radio and he's, he's, showing me that he's got a deck of cards with naked women on in the deck of cards just like one of these crazy experiences we we get to the border we go into pakistan and we get to abdul's hotel abdul's not there and they won't give us the suitcases because abdul's not there so finally after waiting for 15 or 20 minutes we grabbed the suitcases and I put Sally with one suitcase on one, one motor scooter. I get in another motor scooter and we just go right to the train. We get to the train. It's so cl- now we've wasted all this time. It's so close to the train leaving that we can't even grab the change off the counter of the, of the station. And we get on the train, we get into the compartment we just collapse onto the seats in the compartment. And I turn around and say something to Sally in Afghan, like, oh, it's good, we made it. And, and I hear from the door of the compartment, I hear somebody saying, my, you speak Afghan really well. And those are beautiful, that's beautiful luggage that you have. <laughs> and I look up, and there is a, a, an, a, a Pakistani man in a suit, a Pakistani woman in a woman's suit, and an Afghan guy in native dress with him. And the man turns to me and says, I am psychologically trained to detect hashish smugglers, and I think you're one. Oh. <laughs> There's nothing in the suitcases, though. No, the, no, we have picked up from, see, I'm not telling the story very co- well. <laughs> we picked up the suitcases uh, from Abdul's hotel in Quetta, the loaded suitcases. Oh, loaded. Yes. Right. So now we have the suitcases that were just finished maybe two or three days ago. So at least they should smell of glue <laughs> at the minimum. So... So he's, he says he thinks I'm a, a hashish smuggler. And, well, I just laughed as if that was the most ridiculous suggestion of all time. <laughs> and, it was, um, and it was my only defense and because uh, he was looking to see what my response was going to be. But in any case, he had his Afghan uh, guy who was kind of like their dog in a way go down, pull pull the uh, clothes out of the suitcase and begin to sniff. He sniffs all around the suitcase. He's <laughs> sniffing and he's sniffing and he's sniffing. And, you know, at that point, you know, you know this is when time slows down. Mm-hmm. And you know that the, that moment's going to determine what's going to happen, something. And he looks up and he shakes his head like nothing. <laughs> 
and we they leave the compartment and as it, it was like a phantom as if they had never been there and then we did what we planned to do which was straighten up completely on that uh, train ride use the shower and uh, change from hippies into straight people basically on the train so that so that was the that was kind of the uh the first adventure and basically everything that we did over there uh, the same thing happened. We had an encounter with the police at the critical moment of the adventure. And every time we escaped or we, and it got to the point where I just felt that there was some kind of divine intervention because it was too, uh, too ridiculous of a pattern that it could happen over and over again and everything would work out. It was kind of, you know, and, uh, and um, the, at the, the other side of it was that Sally, uh, when we decided to go, she thought we were going to be, you know, basically on a spiritual trip to the east. And, and here I am dragging her around, you know, to, to, to Afghanistan, et cetera, et cetera. So there was that, that little bit of attention. So when we, after we went back, uh, on that was our first successful trip, and then we came back uh, and traveled through India for months. I mean, basically, it took us almost two years from we left with our van until we shipped it back because uh, it, we had to leave it in customs in Kabul while we went on and did these other things. Uh, this, we did the suitcases, then we went to Kashmir. And then eventually we came back to Kabul. So wait, what did you do with the full suitcases on that train after they left you, the authorities, the Pakis? Where did you go with those suitcases full of... We went to uh, India. We went from, we flew from India to Vienna. And we flew from Vienna to Montreal. Oh. (laughs) Close to home for you. Um... Well, and I that, was smoking hash uh, back then. I you I probably uh, smoked some of your hash. We might have helped. Act, actually, the truth is. So, what year is this? Seventy one. That was seventy one. Yeah. So I was the in first India. time I went was in seventy. Right. Okay, and that's the parallel because I went to India in seventy as well, and uh, was there for uh, about a year and a half. And so during that time, you ended up in India. So you would you would take the suitcases back then you would go back to to india basically and repeat the uh, adventure well uh, it wasn't like we were on a uh, sort of a, a conveyor belt we were we we also lived our lives so we got to spend a summer in kashmir <laughs> uh which was fabulous Really fabulous. Michael, can I just ask you something? I I mean, you went with these false bottom suitcases on planes through customs to to Canada? You did? Am I understanding this correctly? Correct. And it was, and it, and it had Afghani hash in the suitcases? Yes. Now, I've traveled around at that time too and had some hairy experiences in North Africa, but I can't imagine. I honestly, I can't imagine getting on a plane and going to America with this stuff, even pre, you know, 
what we have now and the nightmare that we we have at airports well, now. Well, don't forget I said we went to Canada. <laughs> right, but I mean, nevertheless, weren't you a little trepidatious about this? I mean, wasn't it absolutely. a bit scary? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Every time you went, every time, every time you went through an airport where you don't, I mean, how did Do you have feel? stomach trouble now? Or I'm ha I had stomach trouble before the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Nervousness about the podcast. Oh, but, no, uh, uh, yeah, but I just can't believe you did this because it, you know. Well, I mean, first well, of all, you have to understand. This was before the war on drugs. This is, you know, this is early on. It was not. Um, and also these suitcases, you, you, you know, it, they were virtually undetectable. Uh, you know, if you had a dog sniff it, OK, but they didn't have dogs at that point. They, they barely had computers. You know, we're talking in 1971. Uh, so. Um, and if and and that was the the, the great thing about the, the about the hog farm people, they weren't greedy. They weren't greedy or greedy for us. They really made a thin. I mean, they did an amazing job. They they uh, took out the lining of the suitcase. They made a mold, a fiberglass mold. They fiberglassed it in. They painted it. I mean, it was really. I mean, it was really not a botched up job. It was a it was a high class job like that. Yeah, and, by the and way, the uh, other side, the other answer to that is that in the future, we had runners. Uh, we had people that we hired uh, that that did it for us. And I'm really happy to say that none of our people uh, ever got in any trouble. I, I want to say one thing, though, to the audience uh, that's listening right now. I'm assuming nobody should be writing you for the formula for creating these uh, suitcases at this point. You won't, you won't be sharing it. No, because I hope we get to that. The, the, the fact of where I had some sort of a change of heart or some revelations where, uh, you know, I moved in other directions, let's say. Uh, so right. that's, that's another part of the story. Right. Well, this is going to have to be a six-part. This will be like serial, right? <laughs> yeah. This well, podcast will have to be like a serial. That's what the truth Which is what... Uh, well, that's, yeah. Yeah, Michael's going to do this someday. He's going to uh, have a, a serialized version of this. Um, can I... I'll just say one thing that's kind of creates an intersection between you're going over there and, uh, and, and doing these far-out adventures and... Um, I went over there, as everybody knows who listens to Mind Rolling, and David and I shared our beginnings, and of course I went over there following Ramdas over there the second time he went back, specifically to meet Neem Karoli Baba. I had no other agenda, um, although when I was in college, I was, you know, uh, loving hashish, and uh, probably I was uh, distributing a little bit in the cafeteria like everybody else was, so... It wasn't like it wasn't on my mind, but uh, my mind went in a completely different direction as soon as I met Ramdas. So, but a few years ago, and you've already mentioned this person on the podcast earlier, your friend, your friend Govind, by the way, who I just bumped into at the Atlanta airport on my way back from New York the other day. <laughs> Govind, no yeah, it's a little insider thing, folks. Uh, but this uh, this couple, who were friends of uh, Michael from way back when and introduced him to his current wife, Sally, 
They were in India at the same time. And this is in 1971. I believe they went over there in, in 70 as well, the end of 70. And they were purposefully going over there to create, shall we say, another adventure, similar to Michael's adventure. And uh, they got on it. So this is a, a, just a little knickknack of a story they told me just a few years ago. They got on a train. They, th they can't quite remember. They think it was in Allahabad because they had gone to the Kumbh Mela. They were on their way to uh, Bombay, Mumbai, to meet some people to put a deal together. So, yes. And, and I just read this in the, in the Love Everyone book, and it was they had just met, so they, they wanted to separate from those people and have sort of some private time. Right, but they were going to see these people in, in, in Bombay, though. That, yes. That's, yes. So they got on the train. Uh, to, and, you know, it's like a, from there, it's probably at least two or three day train ride overnight. Um, and they, how they told the story is they're sitting in, their, in, the, in the, their particular train car. Train stops, and somebody gets on that looks like a sadhuish person, uh, wearing a, uh, a shawl uh, over his upper body, and he came, and the train was packed, and he came and sat right across from them, and everybody who was there s made room for him. He was obviously somebody that uh, had an aura about him so that the, they were going to be very respectful. He had such an aura about them that both... Uh, uh, both of these people, Govind and Gayatri, could not take their eyes off of him. They just kept staring at him. <laughs> and he would look back and sort of smile and so on. And this went on for some time. And at some point, the train conductor went over to this sadhu and he said something to the, sadhu, uh, to the conductor, the sadhu did, and the conductor came to them and said, I've been told by this gentleman, this sadhu, that the, the train is going to stop, not at a station. It's going to stop in the next 10 minutes or something. You're to get off the train. And uh, there you will find nearby a holy place to go visit. You're to stay there. And the next day you're to come back to this same spot, the train, the next day the train will come back and you'll get on and go on with your journey. They looked at him like, what? You know, they could not figure it out. But they were so mesmerized by this sadhu, quote unquote sadhu, that they got their luggage down and they decided to do it. And they and they they say now that they they remember having a feeling that their their karma was going. This was this, there was definitely an effect. Their lives were going to change. There was a huge karmic um, coincidence that was happening here. But they listened to him. The train stopped. They started to get down from the train, and and the conductor said, "Well, you're doing the right thing." Uh, this is a very special sadhu, he said. You're doing the right thing. They got off the train, 
they walked for some time, and I believe the place that they went to is called Mount Abu. It's a very famous place in the middle of India, uh, uh, on on the way to Mumbai. And they went up there. They they don't remember how the hell they got up there, but they got up there. They stayed with some people. They visited the shrine. They came back down, went to the same spot where they had gotten off. The, no train station. Train stops again. They get up. They get on the train, get into some seats, and go on to Bombay. And because they had spent that extra day, they missed the connection of the people that they were supposed to see in Bombay, who all apparently got busted. Uh I don't know if it was soon after or, or before they got there. I'm not sure exactly, but they all got busted. And they, these people realized, oh, my God, our, you know, our lives completely changed. So, time, uh, so at that point, the book Be Here Now uh, was starting to make the rounds. And uh, they, they got a copy of it, and they looked in the book, and they go, Jesus, this sadhu, he looks very much like this Neem Karoli Baba, except he didn't have a plaid blanket. He had on a, a brown shawl. And so they always suspected that, or wondered, was this him? How could it be him, though? He, this was in the middle of India, right? So they end up in Santa Fe. And for years, and we've been, you know, I've I've seen them over many years in Santa Fe because they've come to the the Hanuman Temple in Taos, where we all gather around. All of us that are here, sitting here right now, have been there, and they've seen many pictures of Maharaji in the temple and so on. One day, and I think it's not that long ago, five years ago, maybe six years ago they saw a picture of Maharaji wearing a brown shawl. And when they saw the picture, they came to, they com- it was like a cathartic moment that they realized it was him. <laughs> Can you imagine? It was him. And so the wild thing, too, is at the same time that Maharaji gave them this darshan and changed their lives, we were all up in Kenchi in the Himalayas with him around this time in the spring and summer of 19 and fall of 1971 is when we spent, uh, and, and many of the, those stories of the book that uh, Michael was just mentioning, Love Everyone, which we've been telling everybody about, just came out. Uh, please do, do go pick it up. I think you'll really enjoy it. Those stories that came from that book happened at that time that they t- exact time that uh, they told their story. <laughs> Only thing is, he he was with us in a physical body, but how did he get down there in a physical body at the same time? We don't really know, uh, but there are many stories of him being able to do such a kind of a thing. So that's a little bit of the intersection between Michael and, and I in particular, uh, because... Uh, he was a good friend of Govind's, and uh, and then I heard this story many, many years later. Pretty fantastic, no? And and it's, it's, so it's a good time for me to tell my Maharaji story. Yes, please. So, so as I mentioned, um, so I, 
I, I make it sound like um, that first story that I told was the whole the whole experience of the trip. But as I said, I left the people with the Land Rover and traveled way down through India by myself. And um, this was before I went back with Sally. Um, so the first on that first trip, I I was like a backpacker in Delhi, uh, walking around. And I had, because as I mentioned, I was interested in that aspect of it. I had in, in my pocket the names of three or four saints to visit in India, one of which was named Karali Baba. And um, so I'm, I'm walking, and, and, and it's called uh, Kanat Circus is the center of Delhi. And it's called Circus because it's all, it's concentric circles of streets further and further out. So I was out at the third or fourth circle walking around. I have no idea where I was going with my backpack. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, a man dressed in Indian whites. Now, this wasn't Maharaji, he, not fi this physical form of Maharaji. But he uh, just walked right up to me and took his two fingers like you're casting them in somebody's face. And he came up to me, right to my third eye, and he said, Neem Karali Baba, Neem Karali Baba, Neem Karali Baba, hmm. like seven times to my forehead. And um, I looked at him and I thought, well, you know, I, I didn't quite know what to make of it at that point. And uh, I didn't, so, so I, and of course, I thought of that moment possibly 10 or 20,000 times since and analyzed it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The, the bottom line is I put it in the context. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Of course, the worst of times was that I didn't go to see Neem Karoli Baba. The best of times was that he reached out and touched me and let me know either I was invited or else that he was giving me his blessing, something like, I don't, I, I really quite don't know uh, what what it meant, except that when I ended up in the family that I'm in, which is the you know the family of Neem Karoli Baba people, my people, uh, I have that as kind of like a blessing, mm. like a concrete uh, something concrete. It's not necessarily something I'm just willing, but I had that connection there. So that was kind of a really mm. in, yeah. an amazing amazing moment mm. so, yeah so 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 i did have things like that happening in my life yeah. when i was over there i i make it from the first description it sounds like but as i said i i really felt that for me it was also a, a spiritual quest but i felt I, I i guess that i got a little distracted by the material <laughs> <laughs> which which kind of brings us to that whole bogey yogi concept uh the the bogey being kind of the sensualist and the yogi being the giver up of sensual uh, pleasure per se. And uh, the, it's, it's almost like um, you can just as in meditation, you can, you can deny your senses in meditation and sort of focus on an object and, and block out everything else in the universe, or you can focus on, through your senses on where you're sitting, what you're feeling, and what you're hearing, and have that 
So you, so, so that's the kind of med in the end, um, as a meditation teacher, that's, uh, I've either path is, is a valid path, but just for your practical everyday life, uh, you can't, it's hard to sit with your eyes closed as you move through your day and experience it. So the, so using the senses as a meditation, uh, is something that I feel is really, uh, a, pro- a valuable uh, approach. Well, we should say, because we haven't said this, and, and it's you segued into it, um, but uh, Michael, this is what uh, a lot of his work these days, uh, he has been in the New York area uh, teaching meditation and leading groups and so on. And uh, this is something, if anybody's interested, that they can, we're going to, give a URL for him if they're interested in, and I guess you can do this on Skype. You don't need to be in person in terms of coaching people through any of life's difficulties, which, you know, since you're the guy that actually carried a false suitcase into Canada full of something um, and uh, came out of it without having a nervous breakdown, you have some experience in this kind (laughs) of a thing. And so they can get in touch with you. Um, all right, what is not, the, not necessarily to do that. Yeah, no, to, no, he won't give you instructions on how to make these suitcases, nor how to, uh, get your courage up to the point where you can actually, well, nobody would do anything like this, like that in, in, in today's uh, age, um, of, uh, of nine, you know, after nine eleven. but what is the, uh, what's the website? So people can't it's, find uh, it. It's, uh, michaeldaner.com. So it's Easy. Michael, D-A-N-E-R. M I C H A E E L D A N E R dot com. Okay. So, and yeah, and um, my, I, I, what my, I love to, to help people, coach people uh, who, who are interested in, in their, a lot of people when they get started have uh, questions, and it's amazing how the questions are so. Re- people have the same issues over and over again. So, I've been dealing with those, teach, taught uh, Vipassana meditation in the city for 14 or 15 years. And uh, so I do do some of that. And uh, of course, I love to teach larger groups as well. So um, that's all, all information about that is on the website. Since, since uh, well, David has been rather quiet during this whole uh, podcast, <laughs> uh, I, I feel like it's appropriate if, if maybe David could query you about something. Uh, along the meditative lines, Dave. <laughs> I stumped you there. I've never stumped you before. Well, no, I don't have a query, but, you know, just the story you tell, if people think that that's, a, you know, separate from all of this, it isn't. You know, because I, I had my adventures. I didn't do what you did, but I was in North Africa and was, and I won't go into them, but I had most hairy things happened to me that ever happened to me since. Um, particularly in terms of the police and military in, in Morocco. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I, I empathize with what you were talking about because you, that moment comes when your, your heart stops basically. Yeah. You know, and you're busted and they're very aggressive and very unfeeling because, you know, to begin with, you're a, rich westerner and that's their perception at that time this is 73 for me i guess 
And um, I learned a lot about myself in that time, that when you're up against it, you think you're going to be, well, I was thrown into a dark, black, filthy room for six hours with no one talking to me and um, completely freaked out, actually. And, but no one to talk to, you know, just stuck there. And that was the time when I learned a little bit about being calm because there was a, a point came when, you know, you couldn't freak out anymore. There was a maximum amount of freaking out possible. Just calm down. And so I do, I, I value every experience I ever had Yeah, uh, like that. I don't regret a single part of it, and I'm not going to go into the details of it, but, you know, it, it, it made something in me that wasn't there before. Well, well I have to... You know, me. some kind of courage, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, well, I have to say that for me, um, I, I, I lived with most of this. I had an interest. It was an interesting story because I kept all of this uh, secret or undercover, so to speak. And then um, I realized that we really had kind of a unique story. And I, and I just told one tale from it. But the, the whole experience, the whole gestalt of, of the hippie trail, etc. So I decided to, to write a treatment, which I, I sent David and Raghu uh, copies of. And so, so I, I, I tried to make it. I don't know if this was a wise decision. I made it sort of the, a true story approach as opposed to, mm. uh, you know, couching it in, in some other names, etc. And uh, so, so a lot of this stuff that I've been revealing, you know, only my closest friends knew uh, any of it. Uh, and then to, but, but I figured, you know, this is an amazing tale. And soon, uh, nobody's going to even understand what the fuss was about because everything's going to be legalized. And just when it is, I'm losing interest in it anyway. So <laughs> <laughs> that's a real horror. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we might, I mean, you, you, you got to, you know, differentiate between there were people who were smugglers and so on who were very materialistic and, and, and criminals. Yes. Whereas I, I know you and I know a little bit about the whole thing and, and, you know, the actual um, experiential aspect of hashish and other, uh, you know, opiates, and hallucinogens, not that I'm suggesting that people should do anything, do what you want, but, you know, that, that wasn't a materialistic thing, at least for me. I mean, it just, I never was a smuggler, but I smoked a lot of it. And it was, without that, I would have not had the life I've had. And I'm I'm never going to regret it or say anything negative about it. Yeah, because I know people, myself and I know where I was at. Most do hide that aspect of you, you, their background, and I know for me, um, uh, psychedelics. Uh, I I never approached it as anything except as a sacrament. Me really. too. I never. It was never a party. It was always part of my exploration, and I did a lot of that exploration before I before I went to. Uh, India. So I was, I, I felt I was a spiritual seeker, but I, I also, I would say I got waylaid. I did buy the materialism because, because once you start to import and sell things, you, you have tread heavily on the hippie ethic 
which was that you only give things, you know, if you, if you think about what the hippie ethic was, you shared things freely with your, your fellow brothers. And, uh, and, you know, and that, that brings to mind uh, a story of the brotherhood. You know, uh, uh, David, you've, you've heard of the brotherhood. Of it was Leary. Leary. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so, so these were, that, that was one of the most interesting things about being on the hippie trail. You got to meet some, I mean, to say characters is, it doesn't even, it's not even just, nearly justifies mm -hmm. the term. Because I, I just, and I loved that. I always loved larger than life characters. And boy, did I get to meet them there. Mm. Uh, you know, these, these guys uh, were uh, uh, a troop of guys based around Tim Leary. And their mission was to spread LSD around the world. And, they, and, and it was not just LSD, but it was Owsley acid. Uh, which was the, you know, the purest acid. And, and the interesting thing about, and, and they started out in a Laguna Beach surf shop. So they're also known as the Laguna Beach Brothers. And there was, uh, while in those days I saw, there was a three-part article, three-series article about them in Rolling Stone magazine. And they, they literally had a tractor trailer outfitted with printing presses and everything just to make their false ID, these guys. So, so anyway, I bumped, in, I bumped into them out there. And, um, and the thing that they did was wherever they went, they gave away that Osley acid for free to compensate for the fact that they were selling stuff. They still had that, that part of the hippie ethic. Mm. And, uh, and um, yeah, so so they actually they were in and they were in Kabul making hash oil, which had a little there was a little uh, I don't know if you remember that kind of period. There was a little hash oil run and uh, and their their little hash oil factory got busted. And one of the guys asked as he was he was getting busted, asked if he could use the bathroom and, of course, jumped out the window <laughs> and he ended up coming to our house. And we, you know, Lenham gave him a hundred or two hundred bucks or something. And, you know, we were like at that point, all our friends were like basically making fortunes. We were like like church mice and just we would. But they would come because they liked hanging out at our place. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So so like amazing, amazing. Well, character. Another uh, dissection here is that Ramdas gave the acid that he had when he went back the second time because when he gave Maharaji acid the first yeah. time and he couldn't tell if he was, he flipped it over his head. <laughs> and he came back the second time. It was with that acid from the Brotherhood, okay? And it was from that, that Osley, White Lightning, it was called. And, uh, and that's when Maharaji carefully put like four or five tabs so right he could on see. So he could see. Uh, right. Am I doing it right, Ethan? Yeah. <laughs> am I doing it right? So there was that. That's another kind of line of uh, intersection, yeah, rather. Yeah. And also, Larry Brilliant was part of the hog farm. I think he was over there in 71 with them and came from there to Maharaji at his wife's behest. So that's a whole and, other. And he, he was in that. He was in the Dumb Dar Maro Dumb movie. 
you know, well, you know was Dumb he? Mara. I didn't. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. Of he was in the Dumb Mara Dumb uh, movie. Hare Krishna, uh, Hare Ram. Yes, yeah, yes. yeah. It, it, to to explain to to the listeners, when you went around India, whenever the Indians Sorry. would see a hippie, they would immediately start to sing this song from the most famous movie. Uh, Harry, so it was Dhammaro Dham, Mitajaya Gaham, Bolo Subhushan, Hari Krishna, Hari Ram. And it meant drink, smoke, drink all day, Hari Krishna. And it was about this Indian girl runs off with the hippies and right. overdoses. So oh. as soon as, and it was the most popular song yeah. ever in India. So as soon as they saw hippies, they they would immediately break into the Dhammara Dham song. And they would, they would clasp their hands, hands together as if they were smoking chillums, by which that's how we <laughs> smoke. They did that. I was with, we have to end right here, by the way. We're, we, we could go on here for weeks on this, right? Uh, yeah, uh, but, yeah. But that, I was going by a theater where it was playing once with a, a, a friend of mine named Balaram Das, who took many of the pictures of Maharaji. And these Indians came out in front of the picture and went, dum -a dum and they made a motion like, you hippie smokers and weirdos. And I, I started went, will you fuck off, Garrett? <laughs> and Balaram said, what, are you crazy? It's, it's Krishna, Har Hare Krishna, Hare right. Ram. It doesn't matter who it's coming from and how it's said. It's the oh. divine mantra. I went, oh, right, okay. So, yeah, and that's the dichotomy well, of India. Yes. So we, I just I just wanted if we're ending soon. So I just we're want ending to say, now. We're ending now. Okay. Well, <laughs> I, I just want to say that it, that it was kind of a unique experience going to Goa too, which was one of the the parts on the hippie trail. And in Goa, after doing all those psychedelics, um, I did this. I had a psychedelic experience that ended all psychedelic experiences and. And that's when I decided to give that all up and, uh, and began meditation because I figured, okay, now you've had this experience. Now you have to find it naturally. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a fitting, fitting that uh, end uh, and that happened in Goa, which was just uh, another. Maybe we'll have to pick up a little more on the hippie trail and talk about Goa or whatever <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sometime right. in the future. Right. But, but I am intending to make... Uh, a podcast about the hippie trail. So right, we'll so we're going to look for that. Yeah, we are. Hopefully, that'll be sooner than later. But we thank you for coming on, Michael. It's been yeah, fun, 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 to, fun. Always fun to be with you guys. It's also fun to sort of hark back to those days. Uh, they were quite adventurous. So, uh, everybody out there. Um, please go to michaeldaner.com if you want a little bit of help uh, in terms of uh, meditation and practice, which Michael has been doing since that day he had that psychedelic experience in Goa uh, to this That's day. That's over 40, some 45 years ago. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, now you're showing your age. Um, <laughs> so uh, otherwise, uh, David and I will see you next week. We're actually, in, in the months coming, we're going to be talking to a gentleman named Rick Doblin, who runs MAPS, uh, which is all about using ethnogens uh, related to helping people with PTSD and addiction and so on and so forth. So we're going to get more into that and the value of, uh, of eth enth ethnogens. Am I right, Dave? 
Yeah, it's hard to pronounce. It's a but terrible thing. Psychedelic drugs, okay? <laughs> that's all there is to it. Um, so uh, thanks again, Michael, and we'll see you all next time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.